0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing all right, Robert. How are you?
0: I guess I'm doing okay. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, You know, I guess uh, there's some, it's been kind of a weird week for me, but we're here. We're going to talk about Kentucky government and politics. And that means we're going to be talking about covid and the special session; those are the two major things that are going on here in the state of Kentucky. Um, of course, we're going to do our normal COVID update because we are just in the thick of it right now. But maybe some good news on the horizon here. And then we have a special session that is going on right after we recorded our episode last Wednesday. Uh, talk really accelerated, and they called a special. The governor called a special session that started on Tuesday. So Jasmine's going to talk to us all about the things that have been going on there. And then we have some quick hits to kind of finish it off. But So, you know, we have a lot to get to. So let's go ahead and get to it. This is our COVID update. Jasmine, it is not all bad news this week as it has been in the past several weeks. It does look like Kentucky's current outbreak might be cresting. We may be at the top of the the mountain in terms of the number of cases. But of course, we still need a little bit more time to know for sure. Uh, the cases, you know, they keep going up, they keep going up, and they st- kind of stop going up and they come back down a little bit. And that's kind of where we are. And also our deaths saw a decrease this past week. But you know, it was Labor Day on Monday. And so that might have decreased the number of tests or maybe just decreased the number of, you know, reports back from labs or whatever that could be- impact our numbers in some way. So that's something we have to to look out for. Right now, all but three counties in Kentucky are red, and the three are Clinton, which is in southern Kentucky, Morgan in eastern Kentucky, and Carlisle in far western Kentucky, so very different parts of the state. I think all three of those counties actually border another state, which is kind of interesting. Uh, They're all pretty small, but those are the three counties that are not in the red. But that masks a significant improvement in several counties across the state, which have receded from huge highs to something a little less terrible. Still pretty terrible, still very red but something a little less less terrible. Uh, many of the same counties in southeastern Kentucky that have been really, really hit hard over the past month or so are still being hit really hard but you know, only two counties, Clay and Perry, are left with more than 200 cases per 100,000 population. Everybody else is, you know, down into the hundreds, um, and, and some have actually slipped below that number too. So it's it's still really bad. I, that more than 100 is is four times what would put you in the red. But we we are uh, down significantly from where we are. We had also talked recently about Woodford County as one of the counties that has a really high vaccination rate and also had a, a low case rate. Uh, they it looks like they had a pretty big outbreak. They had a lot of cases that popped up um, just recently, and and so I, you know, I don't know. There a lot of times when this has happened in the past, of like Googled it and you could see, oh, there's an outbreak at a prison or a church or something. I did not see what caused the outbreak in Woodford County, but they they went up by like three times what they had before. So so something happened to Woodford County. Louisville saw a a pretty significant decrease in the number of COVID infections last week, they dropped from 3900 to 3500. That's a 10% drop. And the Fayette County Health Department, which does not actually release numbers, just charts as like image files, uh, they do look like they look like they have crested as well. I can't tell for sure. Uh, I don't know what the actual numbers are don't know the percentage increase, but uh, it looks like that they have leveled off quite a bit. Governor Bashir noted that while the positivity rate had been falling uh, in the past few days, it actually had ticked back up. So that was what he said at his press conference on Tuesday. I did not actually check the positivity rate today, so I don't know. Uh, but it's that,
1: over 14% today.
0: Is that more or less than what it was the day before? That's the real question. And really, is it better than it was four days ago? It is high. It's of course it's high. It's the highest it's ever been, um, but I don't know which direction it's going right now. Uh, but if it's going up, if the positivity rate, which had been falling, does in fact go back up, that that could indicate that the leveling off, leveling off could be just a mirage, and we be it could be in, you know, we could be seeing a, another increase coming soon. So that's just something to to be watching. Watch the positivity rate as as one of the leading indicators. So our hospitalization rate only saw a really slight increase in the past week. And that's pretty consistent with an approaching peak. The peak, though, is extremely high, about 2,400 hospitalizations, which is more than 30% higher than the peak in the winter, which we thought was really, really terrible. And, you know, with so many younger people being hospitalized, the stays end up lasting longer uh, and the census really starts piling up. There just aren't that many beds left in the state of Kentucky the vaccination rate has been kind of interesting. So uh, it looked like our vaccination rate dropped very substantially on Tuesday, which was the the first day this week that reported numbers. But it looked like it was just a data hiccup, probably due to Labor Day. I'm not totally sure. But I think it's probably mm-hmm. due to Labor Day. After we got, I guess, probably a couple of days of missing data back in, we, we're still a, a little bit off our peak. So we may be like backfilling a little bit or could it could just be because of Labor Day that not as many people got vaccinated. But our numbers are between 7000 and 7300 new people getting the vaccine per day, which I think we had been about 7500 in several weeks prior. So that's pretty consistent, if not just a slight downtick. Still not enough, but we're, we're, we're still kind of holding steady there. There are lots more counties that have a 50% vaccination rate. I counted them all up in the map, but I actually found the federal data source that uh, could kind of give me the answers as to how many people were vaccinated in a specific county. But <laughs> that federal data didn't exactly match what the state said. So I'm a little confused how many state, how many counties have more than a 50% vaccination rate. It could be as many as 30. It might just be uh, you know 15 or 20. Um, suffice it to say, though, that a lot more counties are getting vaccinated. That a lot of people have crossed over that threshold of fifty percent. And you know, I do think that the federal data, even if it doesn't match exactly number for number the state data, I think the trends are probably accurate. And, and I looked at kind of the places where vaccinations are rising most quickly across Kentucky. And, and since August first, the ten counties with the highest increase in the level of vaccinations represent a lot of different places where the pandemic has been really bad. Four of the counties in the top 10 are in southeastern Kentucky, Floyd, McGoffin, Perry, and Breathitt. Um, Carter County in Northeastern Kentucky also had been hit really hard as well as like Clinton and Fulton, which are out in Western Kentucky. They also saw a pretty substantial increase. Now, a lot of these places still have a pretty low overall vaccination rate, but they have had an increase in the rate of people getting the vaccine. So that's, that's pretty good. I think that that's good to see, to see that like, Hey, this, all this bad news and potentially this pressure being put on them, uh, and and advertisements about, or not advertisements, but like, you know, Hey, go get the vaccine. What do you call that? Jasmine? Like PSAs? Or something?
1: Yeah, PSAs.
0: Sure. <laughs> all, I the, all those PSAs. I'm telling people to get the vaccines. Uh that those may, may be working. At this point, twenty percent of Kentucky's schools are closed uh due to twenty or due to COVID nineteen spread. We have no idea how this is going to get resolved, but Jasmine, you're going to be talking about schools here in the uh, when we're talking about the special session. So we'll kind of save that for then. But yeah, that's a lot of schools that are closed. And also a piece of news about this is that a 15 year old Shelby County student died from COVID this week. You know, not a lot of teenagers pass away uh, from COVID 19, but even if it's a low percentage, you know, when your total number of people with the disease is so high, what? People are bound to die. Like that's just that's just how it works. Uh, this doesn't mean that the the disease is any worse than it was before. What it means is that a lot of people have the disease, and enough people have had it that people who are younger and younger are starting to go to the hospital, and yes, in fact, starting to die. And that's bad, and we don't want that. So everybody needs to get vaccinated. Another piece of COVID news that happened this week is that Kentucky basketball coach John Calipari told the media this week that he had a breakthrough case of COVID-19, um, but he didn't publicize it because he was a little worried about discouraging other people from getting vaccinated. So he just kind of didn't mention it. Uh, did you see this news story? And what do you think about that, Jasmine?
1: Yeah, it sounds like he had it over the summer. And and that's kind of before like Delta had hit super hard. Um, and we weren't seeing as many breakthrough cases. So I guess I understand the hesitation to t- tell people publicly in a state where a lot of people are vaccine hesitant or even anti.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I get it. I, I do. get why he didn't say anything. And, and I don't think he, he has to, mm-hmm. um, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: nice that he like told people now.
0: Yeah, I I, I totally get what you're saying about about the timing. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Because like, we weren't having a big conversation about breakthrough cases. But I think now the conversation is a little bit about like, hey, breakthrough cases happen, but you should still get the vaccine. And I think that you know, his message has changed a little bit. And that's kind of what he said. So that's good, I guess. So, yeah, um, there's plenty more news about COVID last week, but probably it fits better with our segment about this special session. You know, in the end this week, COVID cases, you know, show a glimmer of hope of maybe not getting much worse than where they are now. But, you know, as you're coming back down, you're coming back down from a really high peak. So it's still there's a lot of people yet to get COVID who are going to get it in the coming weeks and months as we as we go back down the mountain. And and it's hard to say how far down the mountain we're going to get before things start going back up. So it's just a really scary time. It continues to be a scary time. Things may be a little better, but we still have a ways to go before we're back to normal. So we'll see what happens. All right, that's it for COVID this week, Jasmine. Let's talk about that special session that's going on.
1: So much has happened in the <laughs> last two days, and it was really hard for me to even condense things down for, you know, an under an hour podcast that we do. <laughs> um, so, I've tried to do that. So, Governor Bashir called a special session, and that began yesterday. Of course, special sessions are limited in what they can address. And Bashir's call asked for the legislature to extend the state of emergency, determine the governor's ability to issue mask mandates in certain situations, provide more flexibility for schools, appropriate federal funds to fight the pandemic, and review previous executive and cabinet orders. We're going to go through the bills and joint resolutions that have been filed in the special session. So all of these, there's a House bill and a Senate bill that are identical. And the reason they have done that is because that way they can pass them quicker with less readings, basically.
0: I think it's the same number of readings, but you can kind of do them concurrently. Like the House can be reading the bills and the Senate can be reading bills at the same time.
1: Right. So, yes, you, you can do it in a shorter amount of time. So the first one is... HJR1 and SJR1. So these joint resolutions extend the state of emergency to January of next year. And they include, you know, a couple like non-controversial things like allowing certain agencies to meet virtually. Um, These were both passed. Um, They had to the governor's desk. um, Savannah Maddox, Felicia Rayburn, and Lynn Beckler voted no.
0: So those were the only. That's th-
1: all I was going to note about that.
0: Those were the only three no votes, or were there others? And those were just the most notable ones.
1: Um, those were the notable ones in the House. I think that there were a few no votes in the Senate.
0: Yeah, I think as prob- well.
1: That's even more conservative. Yeah, you
0: know? I think probably like those three folks, especially you know, Savannah Maddox and Felicia Rayburn, they're voting no on basically everything along with Adrian Southworth in the Senate. Like those are the people who are like, yeah, the most anti safety people in the legislature, probably. But there's a lot of people who are well, well, you'll get to it. Yeah, let's let's keep going.
1: Right. Okay. House Bill one and Senate Bill one. So these bills would nullify the statewide mask mandate for schools and child care centers, and would also prohibit future mask mandates until June 2023. So if things got really, really, really bad and the state wanted to issue a mask mandate, they could, they can't do it for at least two years. Um, these bills would also add 20 remote learning days for districts, um, but they are different than NTI days in that they would allow like a single school or class to go remote instead of the entire district doing NTI. Um, So they would have 10 NTI days plus these 20 remote learning days.
0: Yeah. And those are, I mean, this is kind of new terminology. That isn't something that the, the, you know, Kentucky school board association uses that often. I don't think like this remote learning days versus NTI days, And it's a little confusing to me how they're different. And I'm assuming you're confused as well, because I think everybody's confused because I don't think there's a lot of clarity uh, about what it is. But did you are you following much about what the difference between those two things are?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's what I just what I saw the difference being was what I just talked about that it can allow a single school or class to go remote instead of the entire district.
0: Yeah, so you have 20 of these remote learning days and if like one class goes remote, does that count as a full day for like a whole school or how does that work?
1: I think that's by district, but there have been discussions and amendments to make it for like each class or each school. So I don't know what the final product is going to look like, but I think right now it's 20 remote learning days per district plus the 10 NTI.
0: Right. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. I'm just, it's just a little confusing. So it's like these, the bills add 20 remote learning days and remote learning can mean an individual class or an individual school can go remote. So a district has 20 days. And if you know, an English class in a high school has to go remote. You know, like say JCPS and let's say, you know, Atherton's science class, first block science class, Mr. Smith's science class, they have to go remote. Does that count as one day for JCPS or would that count as like, I don't know, would I, does that, is that how that works?
1: Okay, it says remote instruction may be provided to a particular school, grade, classroom or group of students up to 20 days. No school district shall utilize remote instruction for more than 20 days. So that sounds like it's for the whole district and any any remote learning day for like a school would count towards that is yeah. the way I read it. Currently. Yeah,
0: it's just not very clear. I mean, I think that's the thing I'm saying, like, it's pretty yeah. confusing and especially, you know. The people writing these bills are, of course, coming from smaller places than Lexington or Louisville and really not really northern Kentucky either. So, you know, how this interacts with a bigger school district like JCPS is, I mean, obviously nonsensical. So, you know, it's just it's just like this type of work and trying to do this through the legislative process as opposed to through the executive branch, um, which has a lot more flexibility and can kind of change things as needed. Uh, it's just a good example of why using the legislature to do this is maybe not the best idea because you got to like write this bill. It's got to make sense. And then if it doesn't work right, like you don't really have a lot of flexibility to fix it because it's in statute. So, you know, just a good example of how, how this process is not really great.
1: That and the, the ban on mask mandates are two of the things that HB and SB1 do. They would also, um, direct state health officials to create a test to stay program for students who have been exposed they would be able to show negative tests to come back to school instead of quarantining i think you'd have to be able to test every day to to do that right because you can test positive like at any moment
0: Yeah, once you've been exposed. Within a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I kind of understand that, you know, you want to avoid having so many kids in quarantine. But, I mean, it is kind of like... It says state health officials would create a program. So like ostensibly, those people would be in charge of figuring out and making sure it it makes sense. I think probably you would have to test every day and it probably would be, you know, if you would have had to quarantine for the entire period, you have to quarantine, which, you know, is three days or four days or what I don't even know what it is. Um, You have to take a test all of those days and they all have to be negative or else you have to go home. Um, that would make sense to me, but I, I don't know. I don't know. And I guess it's kind of up to the state health officials to figure out how that's supposed to work.
1: Right. It, it'd be up to the Department of Public Health under the bill. Um, so that's what. Senate bill, House Bill one does um, the Senate passed that bill out of committee yesterday, but then it went back to Senate committee today to remove some language about um, retired teachers returning to work. And they also took out a provision that allowed for districts to have vaccine incentives. So there was a lot of debate about this provision. And Senator Adrian Southworth called it a deal breaker and said that these incentives cross a line. I don't really know like what that means or
0: what it, she's talking I, I mean, about she's, or what
1: line they cross.
0: She's part of the anti-safety you know, caucus here in the Kentucky legislature that <laughs> yes. that like thinks that incentivizing vaccines is bad and that getting people to take the vaccine is bad. I think she represents a minority of the Republican Party, but a lot of her comments this week are along those lines that we should not be helping people get the vaccine. Now remember Adrian right. Southworth was a member of the Bevin administration. She was a high ranking person inside of the lieutenant governor's office. And that's just a hint as to what our COVID response would have looked like if Andy Bashir weren't governor that I think that that's just the best way to consider all of the actions that Miss Southworth has taken this week.
1: Yeah. And you know, she also filed an amendment to the bill that would explicitly prohibit incentivizing the vaccine. Um, so yeah, that's where she stands. But, um, with those changes, I just talked about the bill passed out of Senate committee again. Um, Now, there have been a combined 18 floor amendments between the two bills. Um, Matt Caslin filed an amendment to prevent school boards from issuing mask mandates. And a big Republican argument this whole time is local control, local control. Let's let localities make these decisions and then Matt Caslin filed an amendment that, like, bans school boards from issuing mask mandates. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> the the more I, I think, like, a more generous reading of this occurrence is that there are people inside of the Republican Party that really want to prevent any sort of, you know, any sort of response to COVID whatsoever. Yeah. Those people don't necessarily represent a majority of the Republican Party or the Republican legislators or the legislature, uh, but they're going to be wilding out, man. They're just going to be putting out Florida amendments. They're going to be voting on things. They're going to be saying crazy things. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I
1: think it's important to talk about them though, yes. even though. They may not pass just I mean, people need to know like who's representing them in Frankfurt.
0: No, no doubt about it. Like we need to we need to mention it like we do need to say it. like it's where I mean, we have to talk about it because this is who's I mean, this is these are the people that we're sending to Frankfurt, but we don't need to fear it like we're this isn't going to pass, but it does happen. And that's bad. That's bad enough.
1: So a couple of like the Democratic amendments that I'm sure will go nowhere. Um, Reggie Thomas filed amendments for providing for like COVID sick leave and one for vaccine PSAs. Lisa Wilner filed for an amendment that would allow hybrid school models. And then on the Republican side, there have been some other amendments. Felicia Rayburn has filed at least four of them at this point, I think. So a lot of amendments have been added to House Bill and Senate Bill 1. So we talked about it passing out of Senate Bill Committee. Then today it was taken up in house committee so earlier today when the house committee met it failed (laughs) which i don't think uh people expected
0: no they definitely didn't and i added some more here into your your segment right here
1: Uh, oh i robert i was i was updated i i've kept up with this today
0: (laughs) good 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 um
1: yeah so it was it was a mix of Republicans and Democrats who thought it either went too far or didn't go far enough, they were a short one vote um, to get it out of committee. So they met again at 4.30 shortly before we were recording this. And several Republican members and Tina Bojanowski changed their vote and it passed easily out of committee. The Republicans who changed their vote were like the more moderate I guess um Republicans and said they were voting yes to just get it out of committee.
0: Yeah. I think it was like Killian Timoney who's, you know, took over for Stanley is a lot more moderate and there was a couple of others and and yeah, I think that mm-hmm. they kind of said a lot of their concerns about this bill going too far were going to be addressed on the floor. So we'll see what happens and and yeah, yeah it is it was kind of funky. So like it, it like the Senate passed Senate Bill 1 out of their committee, but the House had to pass House Bill 1. And that was one of the things that Tina Bojanowski said was that the House bill was superior to the Senate bill. Obviously, you know that the House even though it's dominated by Republicans is a little bit more moderate than the Senate. And she was really worried that the Senate bill, if that was the bill that they were carrying, would be worse. Uh, and wouldn't be able to be moderated. So that, you know, it would have been a good thing to get this Mm -hmm. one to the floor. So they didn't take up the Senate bill. I think that was her, her logic there. And, you know, uh, it's gonna pass, like, there's gonna be something that does what HB one or SB one does. So from her perspective, I kind of get that, even though she doesn't necessarily support what it says.
1: All right, so that is the House bill and Senate bill one. Next is House Bill 2 and Senate Bill 2. These bills ban a statewide mask mandate. Um, The other one addressed school mask mandates. This is addressing statewide mask mandate. Um, But they would also prohibit visitor bans at nursing homes. It would also create clinics for monoclonal antibodies for treating COVID. And it would allow licensed paramedics to work in any department in a hospital or nursing facility. And, of course, that provision is meant to address, like, Healthcare staffing shortages. Um, the bill would also require CHFS to assist with COVID testing and vaccine distribution and encouragement. The House bill version passed out of committee fifteen to five, um, and then the Senate bill version has added a committee substitute um, that that says that local health departments cannot mandate the vaccine. And then the other thing about this bill is uh, Senator Ralph Alvarado has filed like his own alternative version um, called Senate Bill 6. And so I wasn't going to talk about that in depth. It has the same summary as these bills, um, but I don't know like what differences it has.
0: Yeah, it's a little strange because Alvarado is actually the chairman of the committee that that SB2 went to. Um, so, you know, we've got a, we've got a, we've got an original Senate bill. We've got a a committee substitute, like you mentioned, and we have HB or SB six. That's the chairman's actual bill. So, you know, this one hasn't made it out of Senate committee yet. I don't think so. There could be some gainsmanship afoot for this bill anyway. Um, this Mm -hmm. one, uh, this one also caught the governor's eye during his press conference for the monoclonal antibody section. Um, it says it creates clinics for and that was one of his his kind of sticking points was like there already are clinics that exist that are doing monoclonal antibodies and they have to be staffed by certain a certain number of people And if the state actually creates more clinics, you know they would basically have to poach the employees of uh, the other, you know, the other monoclonal antibody clinics that already exist, or hire new people, which obviously is hard to do. So uh, one of the things he'd asked for was to change the language to like say that this the state government could help facilitate existing monoclonal antibody, uh, you know, clinics, but we'll see we'll see where that one ends up. Uh, Obviously, much much of the things the governor has said, uh, have fallen on deaf ears in the legislature. So uh, I yeah, I don't I don't know what's going to happen there.
1: Yeah, so that is number two. Number three is House Bill 3 and Senate Bill 3. So these are funding bills that would appropriate ARPA money to address the pandemic. So the funding would go towards the monoclonal antibody clinics that we just talked about and would be used to increase testing, which I don't know, at least to me, like does seem to be an issue at this point. Before vaccines, it felt like we finally got to a point where it's pretty easy to go get a COVID test. And now it's really hard to do that again. At least in my experience with this bill, Savannah Maddox has a floor amendment that would prohibit employers who require the vaccination from getting the funding. Um, so there's that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the same as the Castlin thing. Like we have to mention this. Like there's people in this legislature who are I mean, I, I keep saying this, but I mean, I hope it sticks. They're anti safety. They don't want people to be safe. They want people to be in danger. That is the that is what I believe. And they're saying these things. They're not going to pass, but we have to mention them. Like This is what's going on in your state government. And if you live in these districts, run against these people.
1: Exactly. Um, So the Senate Bill version, Senate Bill 3 passed out of committee today. The next one is House Bill 4 and Senate Bill 4. Um, These bills would keep the General Assembly members from getting paid during veto days. Andy Bashir has time to sign or veto these bills and then send them back and all this does is while they're waiting for him to do that the legislature the legislators are not gonna get paid for waiting on those vetoes to happen
0: yeah i think that this is like an old strategy that governors used to be able to to implement was basically like the cost for the session would continue to like ramp up and you know, the legislature would get in trouble for like spending so much money on a special session or whatever, uh, when basically the governor was just holding the bills in his back pocket and, and trying, and, you know, w- waiting for them to adjourn so that he could then veto the bills. Uh, and, and yeah, that, this basically allows the legislature to wait out governor Bashir. Uh, if he, I mean, I, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see if the governor vetoes any of these, cause I do think while each and every one of the bills here, uh, except for maybe five that we're getting to um, have bad things in them. That the governor doesn't support. They also all have a mix of like things the governor kind of does yeah. support. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see if he, if he vetoes any of them, but basically this HB four makes it so that they can basically wait them out. So there you go.
1: Right. And then we have house bill five and Senate bill five. So um, this is a non, you know, COVID related bill that would give, over $400 million to an unnamed economic development project in Hardin County. Um, And these bills were discussed, taken up in committee today. Rocky Adkins spoke to the house committee and this is a project that's supported by the governor's office. And according to Rocky Adkins has been vetted very well. And the bill also has a clawback provision for the state funds and for monitoring. Um, So the bill involves, the big, the biggest chunk of it is $350 million in forgivable loans that will come from the Rainy Day Fund, and Rocky Adkins said it's for multiple projects, not just one project at the Hardin County property. Of, of course, like when you're hearing what this is, it sounds reminiscent of the Brady Industries bill, of yep. course, um, but Rocky Adkins seem to be there to reassure people that this isn't that this has been vetted where this is a different situation um so it passed unanimously out of the house committee um representative nima kolkarni passed on the bill uh,
0: jasmine what i mean i'm interested i didn't
1: see if it passed out of the senate committee
0: oh well uh, i don't i probably hasn't yet i think the senate has a lot more to do they may be doing it tonight uh okay. But I'm interested. What do you What do you think about this? Do you think it? I mean, if you were in the legislature, how would you have voted on this deal?
1: I think this is really tough because Brady Industries certainly backfired. Yeah. Um. But I I think at the time that the Brady Industries deal happened, we had Matt Bevin as governor and. I do tend to trust Andy Bashir quite a bit more than him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fair. So,
1: yeah, I I don't know. I'd either vote for it or maybe do what Nima Carney did and, and pass until she knew more about it.
0: Yeah, this is kind of the, the, the one thing. There's a couple of things I do like about this that make me think it may not be another Brady. Like, it has a clawback provision in it so that if it mm-hmm. goes if it goes sideways we have a way to get our money back um that we already have the money like we talked about the amount of money in the rainy day fund and, and that was something we talked about right. a few months a few weeks ago or like we have to do something with this money it's just basically sitting there rotting um so doing something with the rainy day funds is a good thing i think it is a good thing to spend some of that to to do economic development that's a smart idea um i i think that you know the fact that uh you know, we, we have bipartisan support. The the governor said that the, the Republican leadership had been well briefed on this and that, you know, that they liked it as well as he liked it. So they were both pretty pumped about it. So that's good. But mm-hmm. I just keep going back. Like, if you can't tell us what it is, if you can't tell us, like, I just, I have trouble trusting it. Like, I want to know what it is. I want to vote on something where I know what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and,
0: and, that, and I mean, for me, I mean, I got to say, You know, I would know as you know, if I were in the legislature, I'd be a Democrat. And I would also know that my vote was basically useless. So I would vote against it knowing it would pass. That's that's kind of what I would do. Just just kind of say, like, you got to tell us you got to tell me what it is. You got to put this before the people before I'm willing to vote yes on it. Representative Cole Carney, I I think I might have gone that strategy, too. But just it makes me super nervous not to know what something is. And kind of that's that's where I'm at with the whole thing right now. So hopefully by the time it gets to the floor before we pass it all the way through, we have a better idea about what it is. And we don't we don't aren't sitting here holding the bag for like manufacturer of, you know, AK-47s or something like that, Uh, you know, something really bad. Uh, So anyways, that's what I would do.
1: Yeah, that's fair. So those are the bills that were potentially passing in the special session. You already mentioned this, Robert, but most of them like all contain a little bit of good and some bad, you know. So I don't know, you know, if this was the compromise like discussed between the legislative leaders and Governor Beshear. Um, But I, I think that the ban on mask mandates it, is pretty terrible when, you know, there's been evidence that masks do help. Um, and I, I worry about getting in maybe an even worse place with COVID and not having the ability to do anything, which, which is kind of what happened this past year. The legislature banned NTI except for 10 days. And now schools are closing and kids aren't in school, which was their goal in the first place. So I just don't want to be I I just don't want to have all these bans and then we keep having to go back and redo things.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jasmine, I think you're getting at a really important point, which is like when you the Republicans who run the legislature, they want to have power to basically overrule the Democratic governor. And I get that. And and they wrote it basically into statute during the normal General Assembly to give themselves that power. And they have the power based on our constitution to basically give themselves this power and, and force the governor's hand to, to call a special session. But I mean, it's a bad idea. This is not the way the government is set up. That is the, the rule. They were basically trying to regulate using statute, which is not the way that this is supposed to work. Uh, and, and it's causing all kinds of problems, but it's where the Republicans have power and it's how they're trying to do things. And we're already seeing, I mean, you mentioned, like you mentioned, the NTI stuff, these bans, they may not be a good idea. And the legislature, despite what Robert Stiver said, he he said that the legislature was very nimble. They're not that nimble. The governor has to call them into special session. They have to get 135 people together. Um, there was a tweet from Rachel Roberts, you know, right before the session where she was just like, oh, I heard we're going into a special session. I'm out of the country on a business trip. Like, I, you know, I can't come. Uh, and, and so, like, that's – you can't do that. You can't get 135 people together in the middle of a pandemic in an emergency to pass these kind of laws. Like, that's not what the role of the legislature is supposed to be in our government. And yet, because of the power dynamics between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party here in the state of Kentucky, that's what we're stuck with. And, and it's a real shame – uh, that, you know, that we have such a substantial anti safety caucus in the Republican Party, because they don't want to allow the governor to keep us the lot to, you know, to do his work to keep us safe. And and we have this insane situation where we may have to have another special session somewhere down the road to start allowing, you know, mask mandates again, because things have gotten so bad. So yeah, that's kind of where where I'm at with it.
1: You know, one last, Thing I wanted to note about the special session um, is that another really bad part of it has been misinformation spread by a few of our elected officials. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this um, with Adrian Southworth and a few others, but, you know, she talked about how masks and vaccines obviously don't work at, because the pandemic's getting worse and, and something about, a constituent sending her information that said the vaccine was non-sterile, just all kinds of stuff. And then Nancy Tate, at least 7,000 people have died from the vaccine, um, which is also like debunked information. This number like came from the VAERS database, which is like the adverse effects database for vaccines. But that number is just the number of people who have gotten a vaccine who have died it doesn't cause of death it doesn't say that the cause of death was the vaccine it could be anything
0: yeah i mean it's just it's just basically people who don't like the idea of vaccines and don't like i you know i don't really understand it but they're just like forming facts around their already existent opinions and and spreading basically just lies and misinformation because they want to bolster their position, which is really scary and bad.
1: Yeah. The same 7000 statement was repeated later by Representative Dotson. And then we also had Danny Bentley, who said that none of the vaccines are FDA approved. Um, And then Dr. Sack told him that Pfizer is FDA approved. And he said, that that was a bait and switch by the FDA and Dr. Stack was like, I don't really know what to say to that. It's fully approved by the FDA. Like, I don't know yeah. what you're even getting at here. And some people I've seen have pointed out, um, that Danny Bentley has shared vaccine clinic information on Facebook. Um, and so, you know, maybe a little inconsistent.
0: Yeah. Danny Bentley is a pharmacist. You know, he, he owns a pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And like the pharmacists and are, are part of the medical establishment that's supposed to be giving people the truth about, you know, the vaccine. And and a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you got to trust your doctor. And, you know, the government officials aren't going to be the ones that are going to be able to convince people, but they'll listen to their doctor and the healthcare provider. And if these are like, these are the people who are the, the pharmacists in this state is like, they're sitting here saying that you know the vaccines aren't fda approved and that's not i mean they're just lying about the vaccine it's it's like we're in upside down world here and and it just they just don't want us to be safe that's the only way i can put it like Mm -hmm. they just don't want us to be safe that that's all i can say
1: well that's all we have for the special session (sighs) right now um we have a busy week so there's still more to go that uh we'll get to talk about next week on the
0: show absolutely (laughs) All right. Before we leave, we do have a few quick hits, uh, mostly around, you know, police and, and stuff. So the the Kentucky State Police and the Justice Justice Cabinet, they completed their review of a very controversial and quite bad set of training materials. We talked about this before, but they they quoted Hitler. They called on cadets to be ruthless killers. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that was really bad. It was just helped to be uncovered by the, the manual high school uh, student newspaper. Um, anyways, the the Justice Cabinet and the Kentucky State Police reviewed these the, this material and how it kind of came into existence and got to be used. The ACLU was unimpressed with the report. The report didn't really call for anything in particular to actually improve their training. Um, there was some retraining that was recommended for You know, cadets that went through the original training where they were told to be ruthless killers, but not very much. And it kind of seems like if you tell people that, you know, do like Hitler, you probably should retrain them. That's probably something you should do. But they didn't say that they needed to be retrained. The ACLU eventually called the report necessary, but not enough. So that's that's where that's at. We we talked about this before. Yeah, pretty, pretty wild story. Anything about that, Jasmine?
1: No, I think, you know, I just. I definitely agree with the ACLU, and I guess it's a little disappointing that there weren't stronger recommendations from, you know, like, this is a Bashir-appointed justice cabinet, so um, I would have higher expectations for them.
0: I agree. I agree. All right, the FBI concluded their newest inquiry into the Crystal Rogers case. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, They said they got several, quote, items of interest, unquote. But no arrests were made, so it uh, looks like we're about back in the same place that we were a month ago with Crystal Rogers' case. So, oh well, maybe someday there will be justice in this case, but not today. All right, and lastly, the Courier-Journal has a pretty good article for subscribers, so you should subscribe to the newspaper to read it. But it's about the intersection of this new tentative LMPD, Louisville Metro Police Department, and the FOP, which is the, the LMPD's union, um, they have a new contract that's tentative; that it has to be approved still, but it exists. Um, but there's also this strange kind of intersection between that contract and a potential consent decree that the Biden administration's, you know, justice cabinet might put the LMPD under. This is something that has been talked about at length. Uh, something that might happen here in Louisville and may really impact um, the 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 police union's contract. So it's worth your time to read. So you should definitely check that out. So just wanted to, to, to put that out there in the world. All right. Those were my quick hits. Jasmine, anything else that we need to talk about? I think that's it. All right. How can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com my old Kentucky newsletter. Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.